of the Qarween podcast. We hope everybody is well. Um, I'm joined today by my three co-hosts, Aisha A, Aisha H, and Amina. And how are you all doing today? Alhamdulillah. Good, Alhamdulillah. How are you, Sara? I'm good, Alhamdulillah. It's really good to see you guys again. Um, Good to be speaking with you. And today we're covering a topic that um, is very timely, to say the least. Just last week, it has been the 20th anniversary of the events of 9-11. Um, And at the same time, we're seeing a lot of news and a lot of headlines about um, the United States Army exit from Afghanistan um, and kind of the aftermath of that expectations, linking it to the events of 9-11 and how the entry of the U.S. military into Afghanistan was a direct, kind of a direct result of 9-11. So today we're talking about um, 9-11. We're trying to not address it solely as an event that resulted in Islamophobia or securitization and surveillance um, and upheaval in the Muslim world, but um, also kind of talk about how it led to a sort of new wave of reform of Islam itself, new trends that popped up throughout the Ummah, um, both in the West and outside of it. Um, So I want to start by asking you all just how you feel knowing that it has been 20 years, two decades since 9-11. I just think really really heartbroken in a way for you know the muslim ummah at large that it's been 20 years since that you know that initial day in 9 11 2001 um, and just seeing everything our ummah has been put through and endured and suffered over the last two decades like subhanallah it's really um it's really sobering just to think it's still ongoing yeah I mean, I kind of still remember where I was on nine eleven. Do you guys remember? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, actually, I, I was, I was three. <laughs> you years were a little old. bit young. Yeah, I was yeah. almost four. But yeah, what's okay, interesting wow. is, yeah, I have no like direct recollection of it. I just remember later, like, being in elementary school, like some grade, someone mentioning it, and me being like, "What's that?" and go having to go home and ask my parents, like. I don't know. I don't know why I don't remember specifically the mm. events of that day. But... No, you were really little then, so that's fair enough. I mean, I remember we were shopping on, um, well, yeah, in London for a family wedding that was actually supposed to be in the US in, sep- in later on in, in the month, in September. And obviously, kind of as, as we were shopping, it's it was, you know, in a bit more of a Muslim-dominated area. There was a lot of shops and restaurants. Suddenly, everybody put the news on and everyone could see what was happening. And then, subhanAllah, like, we definitely couldn't go to the wedding after that it wasn't a situation in which muslims were now able to fly easily to the u.s so that was that but i feel like being now 20 years on it's interesting i mean i think something that i've been thinking a lot about when i've been looking at a lot of people reflecting on this time and how it shaped their their childhood and their transitions into adulthood and their education and their job prospects and so much um especially for Muslims in the West. And I think we shouldn't kind of overstate um, 9-11 as an, as in a kind of a, a world event. It definitely did trigger a lot of major shifts, but not to have so much of a Eurocentric understanding that, you know, this thing that happened in the West shaped absolutely everybody's lives on the, the whole planet. Um, but one thing I do think that it definitely changed 
particularly for the generation of, 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 of young Muslims that grew up in the West, was that our upbringing was consequently very politicised. Those events forced people to reconsider aspects of their identity that weren't as much... I don't want to say were never considered, but I, I wouldn't say they were as, as, as commonly brought up for previous generations. And that's brought a whole host of problems, um, which, alhamdulillah, you know, obviously our community has done an amazing job in overcoming some of those challenges. But I think loads of those challenges still remain and have morphed and transitioned into other things such that we don't always attribute it directly to 9-11 or the war on terror that followed that, but are still very much a part of that. Um, you know, apart from being old as hell, I guess living in the comfort of the West and in the UK especially, uh, 20 years doesn't really weigh as heavy on us or as me uh, on me as it would for many of those living in the Muslim world and maybe even American Muslims. But it's one that recently, um, you know, when Ramadan that has passed, we, me and my family were calculating our um, Zagar contributions. And, you know, it's kind of insane that for almost two decades now, we've been contributing to the same cause just like year in year out it's almost routine for us without even realizing you know this is something that has been going on for so long and you know for us it's just getting money but there are people who are relying on this money there are people for 20 years who are dependent on their daily lives are dependent upon what we give to them and it's just like a really heavy feeling just like a sense of both helplessness and guilt i guess because you know we are so heedless right tragedies that have happened a few months ago we've forgotten about that and this is a whole Mm. 20 years of violence and destruction that has been largely overlooked, you know, by much most of the world. Or if not just overlooked, but just deemed as the new status quo, that's just how the world Mm. is, you Mm. know. Mm -hmm. The Middle East is supposed to be this war-torn, rubble, you know, littered place. Like, you know, what is infrastructure in cities? They don't exist in the Middle East. That's not a thing. Mm. What about you, Sada? Because I feel like as well... When I hear American Muslims talk about it, especially the immediate aftermath, it was very, very difficult for the American Muslim community in particular. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what Aisha was saying about how, like, this just became the new status quo. Like, the past 20 years is more or less my whole life. Like, this is what I know. Is like, mm-hmm. I just know this culture of Muslims being very, like, on edge, being very apologetic. Um, always having grown up with, like, da'wah being from the standpoint of apologetics. Like, that was what we were used to. And kind Mm, of, like, mm. I don't know, it was almost a transition out of that for me and an awakening to realize that, like, it doesn't have to be... Like, that's not the starting point of, like, of understanding Islam for myself and also sharing it with others isn't, like, by the way, I'm not this, I'm not this. Um, We're actually nicer than you think. We're actually better to women than you think. So this is what I know. So if if you ask maybe, like, my parents who um came to the west not specifically to the u.s but to the west like a few years before i was born maybe they can like point to a like a more stark shift um but yeah I mean, that's the thing is like for me it, it was just kind of like a gradual realization of the fact that like this it wasn't always like this but at the same time i think people started to kind of like overstate how stark of the sh- how stark the shift was post 9 11 mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. a new culture and new like um new style of american diplomacy um and, and like more people started you know trying to emphasize like the parallels to past like surveillance program programs like COINTELPRO, um long history of u.s intervention and invasions in other countries um and not just again by the u.s but by other western countries so yeah, I, I guess, like, but that's the thing, it's always been this, like, looming, like, dark cloud that, like, you can't have a conversation about American mm. Islam, about Muslims in America without it being there. 
um, are like the the most like famous U.S. scholars. People talk about like who were they before and after nine eleven, and like it's like this. You know, yeah. you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, like personality shifts, uh, shifts <laughs> in like style of dawa, even like um, the way they talk about like political activism, uprising, things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know like how it, I'm sure there, I mean, there's also a lot of people talking about this right now. So people will be able to get the perspectives of like Muslims who've been in the U.S. for like generations or at least for like decades um, and can recognize a shift like more starkly. But yeah, for me, it was just that like, um, it's just a, c- a continuation. And then me gradually realizing like why things are the way they are. Um, they were once different. They could be different again, inshallah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then in that light, I also want to ask you guys, since you are old enough to remember, like, I mean, the immediate aftermath of it and also the gradual shifts um, after the aftermath, if we can call it that since it's been 20 years. Um, but what was the significance of it, of this whole post 9-11 period um, for Muslims, like in the Muslim world? Let's talk about that first. I mean, obviously, none of us are in the Muslim world, but I think having obviously witnessed that and having spoken to people there, I think definitely one thing we can all agree on is that there were some very physical consequences mm. for Muslims in the Muslim world. Like we are talking about invasions that literally lasted 20 years up until last month. Um, we're talking about long-standing occupation, which, you know, it's... It, it, I mean, there's books written about this, there's journal articles, there's there's news articles, the commentary is vast, we cannot do justice to all of that which is out there. But I think that it is important that we do go back and look at it, because I think if there's one thing that in the past month, in the coverage we've seen about Afghanistan, it was a lot of what we saw back in 2001 to 2003, recycled, whether it's about Afghan women, whether it's about Afghan culture, particularly women. I mean, the vast majority was about women, let's be honest. But many, yeah, exactly. Women and their clothes, whether it's the miniskirt or the burqa or makeup or whatever it is. Um, But definitely so much of that propaganda and misinformation that was used then is being reused today. And unfortunately, I think many people are still not able to identify it as the propaganda and misinformation that it it is, as many weren't able to do so at that time either. Um, But in terms of, obviously, the other main physical consequence was, of course, the invasion of Iraq, which we all now know was illegal and was very unpopular at the time as well. It's I think that's worth mentioning. It wasn't that the whole world was kind of so blown over by this event that they just went along with whatever. There were a lot of voices against it. But unfortunately, the impetus on the part of the of of the US and, and its allies who went in there was much more powerful uh, and, and, and overcame all of that public outcry um, regarding the, the starting of that war. But I think that there's a great book that really talks about some of these fundamental reasons that the invasion of Iraq actually happened, um, which isn't focused specifically on the Iraq war, actually, but it does uh, include a very pertinent chapter on that. It's uh, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. And she actually coins this phrase, uh, disaster capitalism, and gives many, many, many examples of how, as the US was going in, claiming that it was on behalf of all of these principles and all of this, uh, you know, issues of security of, of, of not just, you know, the America, but the entire world and weapons of mass destruction and all of these separate, um, separate issues, there were very there were many financial motives at play. Obviously, we all know oil was a big one, and that's something mentioned very frequently. But even the the way in which US corporations were able to use and exploit 
that occupation to serve their own goals. The way in which private medical companies, infrastructure companies immediately were coming and setting up banks, American banks that were coming and setting up in Iraq, replacing the domestic Iraqi industry. Like this was a, a middle income country before the invasion. So I think that those are always very important things to, to keep in mind when we think about how those events actually unfolded. Um, obviously, we talked about Afghanistan and, you know, the impact um, of the misinformation on the perceptions overall of uh, of people, of how they perceived Afghanistan, of, of women in particular and of Muslim women. And I think that those things as well continued in a very physical way through the presence of international organizations and NGOs who, again, were pushing this narrative of we need to empower these women. And, you know, this is not to say that, of course, there aren't many issues in Muslim countries that need attention, issues of education, issues of empowerment. But again, this definition of empowerment was very particular. And, you know, these are articles that are out there, the way in which, again, big makeup, uh, big American beauty companies went into Afghanistan and wanted to start setting up salons and, you know, places where people could, you know, learn makeup to express themselves. As though, funnily enough, Afghan women do not have a tradition uh, and a beautiful culture of, of, of dressing up already. Um, but all of these things, again, I think are important fallouts that often get kind of just swept under the rug, but are but really show a very harsh ideological strain of obviously this, this whole war on terror. Um, and I think just in general, the dialogue on what Islam is did change in the Muslim world. I think that, you know, when I speak to sisters from Indonesia, even, they will talk about how the discussion on extremism and what your political views should be if you're extreme, if you're not, was continually shaped by uh, by the narratives that were created by the war on terror. And even we can see, I mean, Sarah, you already mentioned about, you know, American imams, but this is also something I think that imams and, and the ulama in, in the Muslim world had to face this pressure of, this is being claimed by an allegedly Islamic group. How do we dissociate dissociate Islam from that? And if I'm honest, I think that perhaps that conversation could be could have been handled better in some ways. Um, I mean, we'll get into kind of the specifics of that perhaps a bit later. But one issue that I feel is very pertinent is obviously this issue that you know people did this attack and claimed it was jihad, and mm-hmm. without going into a huge conversation on jihad now. Um, the conversation around jihad, I would say, has really been constructed constructed in a way that just isn't uh, isn't isn't true and isn't authentic to some of the traditions and the legacy and and, and the scholarship that we have on that. I mean, one example is obviously in a bid to kind of show that this is wrong jihad. What we started hearing was this is actually the lesser jihad, the jihad of the nafs, the spiritual fight. That's what's more important. As Muslims, even if you go and you do this fighting, even in a, in a legitimate way, you know, even the, the companions of the Prophet who did this fighting, Muhammad Sallallahu used to say that it's more important that you focus on your spiritual self. And I see this, you know, up until like last week, I'm reading an article where they quote this. And whilst obviously those evidences are around, there's a lot more explanation that the ulama used to give around these verses so as not to elevate or diminish the significance of either one. Particularly Ibn al-Qayyim and Ibn Taymiyyah I know, did not use this language of greater and lesser because they were afraid of doing that. And we had Muslims who were deliberately trying to do that. Not even think about what is Islam actually saying, but we have we need to show that Islam isn't a religion of violence so we need to demonize this kind of action 
and elevate this one. And that to me seems very contrived. And again, we can have a discussion, not us personally, but the discussion can be had about those evidences. I'm not saying that, you know, they are uh, all fabricated, although again, some of their chains of narration are weak pertaining to this issue. But I feel like just one of the big outcomes of this was that those discussions could no longer be had uh, in an objective or authentic way that starts from what Islam says. The, the, the overriding context was too much. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Sarah, just to go back to um, your original question about what the impact or the aftermath of 9-11 was like for the Muslim world. Um, I just want to, so obviously when 9-11 actually happened, I was far too young to remember the actual words that George W. Bush used in his speech when he addressed the nation just after the attacks. Um, and I just, I recently stumbled upon it and I'm just going to read out a little bit of it, which I think really gives context to, you know, the past 20 years. So he said in his speech, the terrorist directive commands them to kill Christians and Jews, to kill all Americans and make no distinctions among military and civilians, including women and children. There are thousands of these terrorists in more than 60 countries. They are recruited from their own nations and neighbourhoods and brought to camps in places like Afghanistan, where they are trained in the tactics of terror. They are sent back to their homes or sent to hide in countries around the world to plot evil and destruction. Like, and this is straight out of the words of the American president at the time, which he then in his, you know, later in his speech goes on to justify how this will be a very long fight, but the good fight and you're either with us or against us, basically. And I mean, I, mean, I think so- we should just note here that Sarah's laughing. I'm trying so hard this- to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> because this is literally comedy. Like if this was said today, people would be like trolling him on Twitter the same way people trolled Trump for but saying this. People still stuff. say that stuff. Remember the, who was the guy it, that was like, we are the real Mujahideen? Like that <laughs> rhetoric is still there. They're dead serious about it. It's funny to us because we're, you know, in certain circles of like, even our non-Muslim acquaintances yeah. would laugh at this stuff. But like, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. But that's, that's literally <laughs> what we were saying just before we started recording that, you know, Trump in in last administration obviously would come out but he sounded like such a buffoon like there was such theatrics and hilarity when he was talking that people could dismiss him easily as being a clown and you'd be like oh okay it's trump going on a mad one again but when bush said it it was like he had gravitas he looked like a statement he he could say whatever he want unfounded and just people would take it as gospel right it didn't matter whether it was true or not because you can you can hear this like man they like they get trained in Afghanistan and they hide in their countries and we go to... But all of this, like, as hilarious as it sounds to us, meant that America got a free pass to go into whichever Muslim country with largely the support of the American people and the American army and everyone else because they were like, yeah, it's a war on terror. It's a war against these really evil bad guys that are hiding all over the Middle East and we've got to root them out because otherwise we're going to have another 9-11. And I think that really set the tone for... American foreign policy over the last 20 years in the Middle East. I mean, just looking at some of the numbers, if we're talking about impact on the Muslim world, um, Brown University actually really recently um, released a report um, at the beginning of this month, uh, which showed that 38 million people have been displaced as a result of all the wars fought by the US government since 2001. And close to a million fatalities and that's an underestimate. Like, subhanAllah, I can't think in numbers that big, right? Because my brain yeah, we can't even comprehend doesn't like... That and then, you know, I mean, I was just thinking, and then you spin off of this, the whole refugee thing and how people, like, refugees, such a dirty term and how they're seen as, like, you know, they're vilified and, like, and you're just thinking, subhanAllah, where did this all start? Like, you've got to 
think back to the root and just how like the knock-on effects are huge I think there's a lot to learn about morality and inconsistencies here because usually when we have tragedies the impact is mostly domestic and even then there's very little practical change and mostly just acknowledgements and like public mourning but with 9-11 it feels like you know everything's changed overnight and there was an internet changed the trajectory of muslims like worldwide really small things like you know microaggressions and like airport security to imprisonment and torture and like complete destruction um of whole countries and the name was war and terror and you know the thing is that muslim lives it just kind of emphasizes how cheap muslim blood is um simply because you know those who defend the intervention and imprisonments and who sanitize bush's legacy do so with this bottom line okay you know bad things have happened but you know he protected american lives and for the most part stopped domestic terrorism and so it was it was a success but it's centered completely around the american person and muslim lives here have you know been reduced to like you know numbers and statistics and we don't even really know the actual death toll because these are just like uh, people who have been documented as dead and it's just that you know muslim lives are not really included in this scope of like moral concern and there's even justification for their death as you know necessary like collateral damage and that's because most people see 9 11 as the inception right that's the starting point and everything that happens afterwards is like this whole war and terror is just merely like a reaction to that and rather than like a very long history of like violence and brutality that is you know that you know that america is known for and when we kind of reduce this agency of americans or just westerners to merely reactive what happens is we give a justification for their actions or we kind of make it seem necessary and they are only reacting to this like violent world that they so happen to live in and it's not considering the point that, you know, they may play a role in the emergence of such violence. It's only, you know, white Muslims, somehow we're just violent, we're just born violent, and they have to deal with that. And, you know, just kind of reflecting on the 20 years and this whole, like, war on terror, it's recognising these double standards and this very faulty, like, moral compass of the West. And essentially, they call it like, I think they call it like a ticking time bomb myth, where there's a sentiment that basically there was like a threat of something bad that could happen, and it's going to happen, and we just have to stop it by any means necessary. And this means, any means necessary post 9-11 has been kind of, you know, exercised on the Muslim world and the Muslim community without any restraint. And, you know, it's really solidified this us and them dichotomy where, you know, obviously we are the, the Muslims are the, you know, the they, the bad people. <laughs> and, you know, for some reason, Muslims just hate America for no reason. They just pop out of nowhere and now they have to be dealt with. And this helps justify the, um, need for cases like Guantanamo and just like interrogation and torture and surveillance and a literal war because it's almost a moral duty to do so now and with this blurring of lines and like these great areas that we've created for like the ethics of war and human rights collectively there's like a you know a major like vulnerability in the Muslim world um in the direct aftermath and even now 20 years on there are lots of things that we have to be very mindful of as you know um Aisha H mentioned already things you know just the way our there's a lot of things that we have to be very careful of the way we talk about things the scholars we approach and just the very um, nature of our discourse has changed completely yeah but to like to kind of present like from my just like personal anecdotal experience the just extreme difference in like rhetoric and perception of like the like US invasions and everything cuz I live in like one of the most liberal parts of the US. I went to school with like my like my public schools were like 95% people of color and what I was seeing as a Muslim about like news and like headlines and everything was stuff about like Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib prison, endless like videos and pictures of like 
torture scene like we the like u.s military to us like if we saw somebody in uniform it there was like this like hatred that would boil up in you right but in school people like you it would be so like blasphemous to say anything against like the troops right and it was very normal for people to say like oh my brother served in afghanistan and for people to like see it as like a badge of respect and like my friends would say stuff like that to me and be like oh yeah like i i don't know like this it was it, it, you literally couldn't say anything about it like right now i can go like tweet like screw the troops and like i'll get like 10 likes or something but in school like that would never fly like it was seen as it's like this holy thing that you you can't touch and that they're like literally protecting us like i don't know it, it wasn't like people followed that statement up with any like specific examples or evidences but it was just that constant slogan of like they're protecting our freedoms they're protecting us and again this is in like most liberal parts of california right like not mm. not in this like republican south or anything mm-hmm. but then yeah like you have like that extreme like rhetoric and then uh, on top of that you have like muslims uh in the american muslim community joining the u.s army and you have like these like stories popping up in like you know, the news of everything about like, oh, look at this Muslim soldier and like, look at how they're kind of like embracing their American identity. The Muslim community just kind of like being very casual about these stories and like sometimes even celebrating them. Like we're like so distant from even having any conversations about like the fact that like how haram that is and like how disgusting it is to like not only like fight in a war that's not jihad but against muslims like even to participate in that army so that's like the extreme ends of like you know like what i was seeing growing up basically but even just to i feel like you know what you were saying about how in schools it was blasphemy almost to to criticize the troops i think it was equally uh, i mean correct me if i'm wrong i'm assuming it'd be similar in the u.s equally horrible or abhorrent if you were to sympathize with the afghan people because you know then you're like you know and as a muslim these are my brothers and sisters right who are being bombed and civilians who are being murdered etc but were you to voice any um support or sympathy or anything like that especially in the beginning days um it'd be akin to supporting terrorism Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you give Americans too much credit to even think of the Afghan people as like an entity that exists. Like if you said that, they would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, as far as I know, the U.S. military is out there just like fighting bad people. I don't even know that like civilians. I don't know what Afghan civilians look like or talk like. I don't know what they believe. I don't even know if they're being involved in this. Like the the thinking doesn't even go that far. But one instance I can mention is that like when I I don't know why I did this. Like I, I had like a really fiery personality when I was younger but in high school we had um every year we have like you know we we had um like announcements on the intercom every morning like throughout the whole school um of just like I don't know if you yeah I'm assuming every school has this but like you do do the okay well this is unique that we have like the pledge of allegiance every day and that people stand up whatever um but then every year on 9-11 they also have like a moment of silence for like at least a minute or something and of course, like during the moment of silence, everybody's like looking at me and I'm just like, all right. <laughs> and that just like, that just makes me like more, it just fuels the, you know, the fiery side of me even more. And I'm sitting there, I'm yeah. like, of course it's a tragedy. Why are you looking at me though? Mm-hmm. And so I email the principal and I'm like, hey, so I know we had a moment of silence for like the 3,000 people that died on 9-11. Could we have something to commemorate the like, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people that the U.S. killed in the aftermath. You are brave. You know, she replies like a very like dry, curt email that was like, no, that I think that would be extremely inappropriate. I'm like, okay, just just say you hate, just say that our blood is cheap and that you don't value our life. Like, I get it. Like, I don't know what her, she can't really do anything as a school principal, but that's what, you know. 
if you were to even present that idea to an american like that was one example of you know what the reaction was sort of a president (laughs) i mean it's sometimes difficult to navigate because there are criticisms that we undermine like the actual victims of 9-11 but not to sound callous right but it's largely the american approach and the discourse has undermined the victims the most because by disregarding all the lives lost internationally in war and terror and just centering themselves in every like conversation which is just like such an american thing to do sorry but you know in that Mm -hmm. context there has to be a counter narrative because someone has to think of these people and um, you know and they're only a panda to americans and americans and i know that during this time this is when there was a lot more like i don't know a lot of people had tvs and most people were getting their information from the tvs but all they saw was the american mm-hmm. side of things and like you said people didn't even know what like afghan people look like or what you know how, where they were on the map so if this is all they're seeing, and you know, even Disney Channel, like after post on eleven, there was so much propaganda going through, like freaking Lizzie McGuire and all of that, just saying, you know, <laughs> so much patriotism and stuff like that. Like that's why they need. That's why people are kind of frustrated. I don't know if that's the word, but just they have to show the other side because you know American media never did. Yeah, and that's yeah. the thing is like it's not even the other side, but it's like how do you compare like one incident? of like an attack on u.s soil by like like a small group of actors that nobody supports like it's it's one incident that like represents hardly anybody everybody agrees that it's a tragedy and but then like how is it a counter narrative then to even be saying like you know that like okay all the aftermath of that what the u.s did in the aftermath was horrific but that's the thing a lot of americans will interpret you saying look what the u.s did after 9-11 as you saying that 9-11 wasn't a tragedy like there's no train of logic but that's how like deep the propaganda has like seeped into people that like you just you can't say anything other than like it was such a tragedy moment of silence like that's that's yeah. and that's the thing is very strategic that you cut the conversation off there so you can't yeah. talk about the aftermath yeah see i definitely see that that as well propaganda has taken root in some people and you know in, in most people probably and is unchanging but i feel that one thing that has changed in the past 20 years is that people are more interested in looking at counter narratives people are more interested this new gen z are very much you know critical of american imperialism and capitalist hegemony and it's all very woke and like you were saying sada you know about um people in school staring at you during one minute silence if something like that happened in this day and age, I really feel like you'd put that on social media and it could go viral. People would be emailing your school like, why aren't you giving this girl the support that she needs? She's being ostracized. You know, we need to make a TV show about you. And there would be a lot more public support for your side of things. And that's something that we didn't have initially. And this first struggles of, of that is something that I feel like this generation really won't won't know what that was like like the rise in acceptable islamophobia that we faced like for for starters you know asking muslims to condemn again obviously sometimes people do still do that now but there's a lot more pushback against the idea of why do you only see me as a terrorist why can't you see me as this person and that person and people realize that that's a little bit you know offensive now to ask but it used to be a very much not just even a normal question but an a, a mandatory question that you as a you know, 10-year-old Muslim child, tell me, are you a terrorist or not? And, you know, in this day and age, that kind of stuff wouldn't fly in the same way. Um, Of course, in many ways, you know, all of that laid the groundwork for what we're battling with now. So now, Sada, if you emailed your school saying, can you please have a moment of silence for the thousands of people who have died in the war on terror, they would probably report you to prevent 
or the American equivalent, right? Um, so that, that Islamophobia has been institutionalized. I'm not denying that. But again, the fact that even with programs like Prevent, you have, for example, in this country, the National Union of Teachers or National Union of Students or individual university student unions voting against that, saying we do not want to spy on our students. We do not want to, you know, clamp down on freedom of thought or, or, or be policing and uh, spying on people. Uh, that, again, is something that, I see as as progress in some way, or at least different to what we had to deal with in the beginning. I mean, even again, just, you know, we were talking about like Trump and, you know, we talked about the, the, the general who said like, we are the Mujahideen and all of that kind of stuff. Like, again, like this is the stuff that we laugh at now, you know, even other leaders at, was it the G20 or something? You know, you've got Angela Merkel standing with all the other European leaders making fun of Donald Trump with George Bush, who was, you know, equally an imbecile, he led a whole alliance of Western countries into two wars. It was a very different ball game because of the kind of frenzy surrounding that. Um, you were mentioning as well, Sarah, about like Guantanamo and imprisonment and how these were things that like characterized the war on Terrafas. Definitely, these are stuff that you know you don't hear about now. Guantanamo is practically empty, even though it's not closed. Uh, it was a very powerful moment for me when last month we saw about Bagram Air, Air Base being, um, you know, closed by the US, obviously, when they went and then the Taliban went and, um, you know, freed several, several people, not ISIS members, but several other people, because that was one of the most notorious places of, of torture that especially I think Muslims in the UK are familiar with, because mashallah, Cage is an organisation that has done a great job in actually exposing a lot of what went on there. Obviously, Brother Mahazam Beg was, was held there, as was Dr. Afia Siddiqui, who I think is perhaps one of the few cases which you know, remains since that era that people that does not get enough attention. And it, it's it's really, really heartbreaking that, again, you know, the idea that a Muslim woman who was, you know, a, a graduate of an American university, you know, was kidnapped with her three children, imprisoned and tortured in the most extreme ways, such that her screams were heard in Bahram and in other prisons, and now is being held in the most high security prison as a woman who, you know, her organs are failing. She has been most recently as well attacked. She's imprisoned for 80 years for a crime that nobody really knows the, the, the veracity of and, you know, in, 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 a, in a trial that was heavily contested. This used to be the norm. And I think that that is, again, perhaps a legacy we don't remember as much. And, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant her ease. And I was really actually happy to see that, inshallah, protest is yeah. taking place. I think this coming weekend, this um, third weekend of September, um, where uh, outside Fort, Fort Worth prison, where she's being held in, in Texas. Honestly, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. so one thing I found that, you know, it's really affected student lives quite a lot. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but um, in our circles, it was there was a lot of like fear mongering within the parents that, you know, maybe your children will be radicalised in the ISOCs and stuff like that. So when I first went to uni, I, there was a lot of, you know, I did, my father already said don't join the ISOC just because of things that, not that he thought they were bad, but just, you know, to be on the safe side. And, you know, just there were things like growing beards, boys who are growing beards, like, you know, something that could be sus. You know, this is just puberty for most people, right? It's like, you know, it's like really innocent things like that made people, like, worried. And, I mean, it's a very, it's an understandable fear for parents. But, you know, we've seen, like, the emergence of, like, a whole, you know, a whole new genre or, like, a type of discourse that, for better or for worse, that manages to kind of permeate through, like, politics religion fiction entertainment and you know even fashion it seems and many people have like a career due solely to this like war on terror and it's like the sole focus yeah. of 
you know, many academics on the basis of a lot of research too. And the mm-hmm. activist scene, especially something that had been quite understandably at the forefront of it all. And okay, so I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword in my opinion. So on one hand, there was like there was like a means of unity in this whole protest culture we had post 9-11, where there were some of the biggest protests in the West, you know, opposing the Iraq war. And just growing up, we protested for the release of like Afi Siddiqui and like Barbara Ahmed and, you know, closing down Guantanamo and all that. And even student life, I remember we had this campaign called Students Not Sus- um, Suspects due to like yes, a very real yes. surveillance and, you know, it, well, maybe it was performative to some point because I remember taking a photo holding a sheet that said, you know, but the point is there were very real concerns about surveillance and um, prevent. And then we do have amazing organisations like CAGE who are existing primarily due to the very like indiscriminate targeting of Muslims in this war on terror. But, you know, there's a side that hasn't sat very well with me, and maybe it's because I'm not very much an activist or an academic, but so I didn't really have much time for it. But, you know, there's a lot of people who philosophize and theorize about the morality of certain things and about what should have been done. And it's almost within this framework that, you know, for the most part, it's over. And, you know, like this chapter is pretty much closed. And maybe, yes, for us in the West who are living very comfortably, um, you know, yeah, fine. It's, you know, we're not very much affected by it. But for Iraqis and people in Afghan, like, even despite the retreat, this will be ongoing for years to come. And these countries have pretty much been leveled to the ground. You know, no infrastructure, healthcare, education, governance is pretty much destroyed. And they'll face so many challenges in the future with like corruption and poverty. We have a whole pandemic, you know, climate change. And, you know, my only kind of interaction with the war on terror in my professional life is, I guess, we had like a global health module. And we, I saw the impact of people living in these war zones. And that's a very real reality that we have right now and should be at the forefront. But I see a lot of people partaking in this very kind of intellectual activities that are so devoid of context and the reality on the ground. And it kind of takes focus away from people in, you know, who are living in war zones and suffering at the moment and centering the wrong people. And it's very much indicative of like a very ivory tower-esque analysis that people are trying to build careers upon. And it's, you know, it's kind of very insulting sometimes. So to put it into perspective, the amount of activism and energy that's been focused on educating Afghan women and putting, and you know, the clothing um, by mainly Westerners in the past few years is kind of astonishing compared to the fact that um, of how many people have been kind of campaigning to stop the war. And yet, considering this is an active war zone in which Afghans, like men, women, and children, are being bombed to death by like American soldiers, people who are afraid to leave their houses because you know they will probably not return, and you know, they're living in poverty, starve, starving. Yet, for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people who are in the limelight, the concern is more about, you know, how much of the Afghan women they can see. And, you know, it's, it sounds, it's a noble thing, I guess, to advocate for their rights. But, you know, when you have, war is destabilising. Human rights do not really matter in a war because, you know, no one is going to, um, no one's going to abide by that. And, you know, and especially when in a war that's been overlooked by the entire world. And people have tried to attempt development, but without focusing on the very core thing that people are dying right now. And you know, if you want Afghan women to exercise their rights to education and wearing like the mini skirt, you have to at least let them be alive and not devastated both <laughs> physically and mentally to do so. And I know this is getting caught up in um, like current affairs, but in a general sense, the Muslim identity has very much been weaponized now, um, used either as a distraction from real-time violence that people who aren't they're not really focused on stopping a war and stopping people from dying, rather a very abstract thing of you know women in education where are they going to get educated at the moment anyway and it's invoking culture wars that mean very little for actual victims and maybe just to show off like a fake concern for muslims but just overlooking the stuff that really matters and just you know focusing on stuff that they can they can you know get they can build a career upon so 
that's kind of been Muslim of the West is a very double-sided thing for me where some people have been working very proactively to actually help people on the ground people help people who are, have been in prison but a lot of mm. people have exploited these tragedies for their own um their own benefit mm-hmm. yeah and I think a lot of what we're one of the like running themes throughout this conversation is trying to figure out like when is the you know like has there been even like a transition in the post 9-11 period have things calmed down have we stopped seeing as many like you know cases of uh entrapment and whatnot maybe cases of blatant islamophobia have um calmed down yeah like you wouldn't see um like the stuff that we went through going up and that's saying like it doesn't seem like that long ago like when i mentioned that high school incident i'm like oh that was only a few years ago and then i thought about it and i was like oh <laughs> it's been a minute um but yeah maybe like some of those things have like relaxed but at the same time like okay first of all the like examples that you guys always describe of like prevent um like you know interrogating people for whatever different reasons that's actually something that i would say we don't see as much here anymore like we don't experience it as much or at least people don't talk about it as much but at the same time i know people like when i was in university um msa officers from other schools that got interrogated by the fbi for like no good reason um i knew sisters on campus who got like followed around by informants i know somebody like i heard about an incident online um not too long ago of like like a convert sister who kind of just like i don't know got mixed up in some things and like she got entrapped and like arrested um in like a very shady way like it was really really strange um but it was like a it was like that classic case of like provoking somebody to do something and then arresting them for doing that thing and it was like you know like fbi agent pretending to be a muslim whatever um so yes those things are still happening but um also i want to mention because we were talking about like dr afia and how that's like one of the last remaining kind of cases that we know about and talk about from that time um how like even guantanamo has been largely emptied but there are still people like imam jamil alamin who it, it's not like a it's not a post 9-11 event like his you know false arrest false trial complete framing mm, of mm, him mm, mm. um but and that's why i want to talk about like what we see as like a break in like u.s domestic and foreign policy with 9-11 it's at the same time it's kind of like maybe a, it's a continuation and, and then an exacerbation of like pre-existing policy towards um anybody's seen as threatening the like you know U.S. status quo, Imam Jamil mm-hmm. being a classic example, all, like plenty of Black Power activists, Black Panther activists who were like literally assassinated. Um, yeah. And also like a really, um, I think like a, and this is a connection I think a lot of American Muslims draw now, which is to like the era of like Japanese incarceration during World War Two, which is, um, it's like, it's such a stark example, not because like, again, the U.S. has not been acting like this international police force with the right to invade, with the right to interfere, with the right to act like an, you know, to be imperialistic. But Japanese internment was this, you know, um, event where they created a justification to consider people guilty, you know, but until proven innocent, basically, Mm. and to like incarcerate anybody of Japanese descent um, and to just like extend the power that they already assume that they have. And I feel like post 9-11 treatment of Muslims uh, in the U.S. and obviously in the Muslim world was kind of like a similar thing where it wasn't like there wasn't that pre-existing sentiment, that pre-existing policy. But now they just had to add justification for it. Like they already thought they had the right to, you know, intervene wherever they wanted in the world. But now it was like, look, there's this imminent threat. Um, and 
every Muslim is a threat and every Muslim country is like this body, this pool of like volatile, violent threats that we have to like, you know, intervene and participate in. So I just wanted mm-hmm. to mention mm-hmm. that in terms of like, when we yeah. think about like, okay, is this a break in policy? Is this a transition in policy? Have we transitioned out of that trend now? I don't think that it was necessarily, again, like a stark break to begin with. And I also don't think we really transitioned out of it, which we can see, of course, with like, um, pr- things like prevent things like CVE and the way that CVE becomes more and more um, like implicit and sneaky and the way like more mm-hmm. and more Muslims are kind of like getting tricked into like participating in it and whatnot but yeah the thing about CVE that has been coming up a lot in like Muslim community conversations was how the DHS like reaches out to Masjid and like Islamic organizations and imams and offers them funding to allow them to like grants to then allow DHS to like uh, institute surveillance in their communities. So like there's a lot of instance of like, um, or at least a, one instance of like a message in Southern California that agreed to this. So like, it, it, it's like, oh, you're helping us like protect the community by like giving us access to like, you know, surveying if there are any potential threats in your community. So this has been like, yeah, a big issue. But um, CVE is also in the UK, like prevent is just one element of actually the overall countering violent extremism strategy. But you know, I really think, I mean, I've, I've heard about some things going on in Australia as well in terms of surveillance things, but the UK, I really feel just having heard both of those experiences is a, a world leader in this kind of, you know, CVE policing surveillance state of uh, surveillance of Muslims. Yeah, like, I mean, even before, you know, we had prevent in its final form, we had the, the first and second contest strategy, which laid out basically that framework we had people you know offering funding for masajid and other muslim organizations like i literally remember you know very prominent muslim organizations that i worked in where literally the receptionist is somebody that they have you know requested be put in there so that she can keep an eye on how things are are actually running so you know this has been going on for a, a very long time but sara what you're saying about you know, these transitions actually being a lot more fluid than than we think, kind of, between the pre and post 9-11 and now the war on terror. And if we can think we're entering into a post-war on terror stage, that, that stage as well. I think that's very true, because actually something that was given a lot of um, fuel during the war on terror actually originated 10 years before. And this is the, the Clash of Civilizations thesis by Samuel Huntington, which really formed the basis of what people started to see the, 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 the world and, you know, the relationship between Muslims and the West as. But this was written by, you know, this academic Samuel Huntington in 1991. And it was in response to uh, his student, uh, Francis Fukuyama's um, The End of History kind of thesis, which was basically, you know, after the Cold War, Francis Fukuyama's thesis was basically that, you know, the US has won, that Western liberal democracy is clearly the way forward. There is going to be no other major challenger to it. And Samuel Huntington came forward and was like, civilizational values are going to be the fundamental axiom upon which future conflicts are fought. And he specifically identified Islamic values as being the, 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 the crux of that, which is going to be, you know, against the West. So that caused a lot of controversy at the time. And, you know, people were talking about it. And there was, this is the thing as well, you know, there was the first Gulf War before there was the second Gulf War. So there was already those tensions, those contentions going on. But definitely, obviously, after 9-11, that narrative was suddenly, in the minds of many people, proven true. 
And it was interesting, even like when I was just reading up on this earlier, I, I saw that the UN actually created a new body in 2004 called the Alliance of Civilizations in order to specifically tackle this issue. Because so many people believed that, you know, this is it now, this is the West versus Islam. They as, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, allegedly transnational body but also acting on behalf of obviously western interests wanted to kind of make this um this unity to try and really show that no you know we all have to tackle this together um and promote dialogue between civilizations and stuff like that that was one response to it the other response i think that came from this belief that yeah it's islam versus the west was really this creation and this polarizing of these two kinds of islam you know the moderate islam and the extreme the extremist version of Islam. And, you know, as much as obviously this was something that was prompted by an external situation, and, you know, we'd all be familiar with the frequently cited RAND report, the think tank in the US, that specifically cites the creation of a moderate Islam as the way to fight uh, extremism. This is something that I really feel disappointed because I feel like many, many scholars and many community leaders actively engaged and supported this. And this has led to a whole host of problems for our community now in, in many, many ways. I mean, first up, the idea of a moderate Islam was actually something that was taken from Islamic texts in the first place, because obviously Islam describes itself as a religion of balance, a religion of moderation. But it's hilarious that people started to present this as, you know, therefore we need to be moderate Muslims. You know, this was literally a term, moderate Muslims versus extremist Muslims, whereas as, as peace-loving Muslims versus violent Muslims. But when Islam talks about being moderate, it means that you don't pray, you know, all night. It means you don't fast every single day. It means you don't, like, not get married and think that that's more pious. These are, it, it means that you live a life of balance, but Ultimately, your submission is still to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're still engaging in regular acts of worship and you're striving to be closer to him, but you don't go to extremes in that respect. It's got nothing to do with violence. And so the, I, when people started using this terminology and saying, yeah, but Islam says to be moderate, Islam is a religion of moderation, it's talking about something completely different. And it's a huge shame that that was bolstered by people who were supposed to be authorities in religion or in the community. The other kind of ironic thing is that by us engaging in this conversation, we really made this conversation about Islam. It started to become about what are the signs that you're a moderate Muslim versus an extremist Muslim. Like Amina was saying, do you wear, you know, do you have a beard? Do you wear a thobe? Do you wear a black hijab as opposed to like a colourful hijab? Do you wear naqab? Like it started to become about all of those signs rather than actually questions surrounding history, politics, violence, hegemony, which, you know, are the things that should be considered if we're going to talk about 9-11 and the war on terror. One other thing that I remember very particularly that was an unfortunate statement made by a very prominent scholar shortly after 9-11 when, you know, a lot of people were were talking about this and that frenzy was there was this statement of, you know, if you don't like it in the West, go back to where you came from. And this mentality was then something that started to become uh, very prominent, not just among kind of non-Muslims who were obviously angry and upset about the situation that they'd witnessed, but also by Muslims who started to think that if you start criticizing your society that, you, that you're that you in, if you start criticizing actions by the government, then why are you even here? Just just, just go back home. Like, you know, you don't deserve to be here uh, if, if, if you're going to complain about things. It's, it's, it's ironic because this has made, you know, again, us in the situation that we are in today when we question where people's citizenship is questioned where our right to be in this country, making it conditional on our beliefs, is now giving way to a whole idea of just 
of, of there being certain values that we as Muslims have to embrace in order to have a place in this society. And that, by extension, has led to a lot of people abandoning certain values of Islam in order to be more in line with the values of mainstream society so they feel they have a place. And now that we have people turning around saying, why do we have a crisis of faith in our communities? Perhaps we have a crisis of faith because people made them feel like uh, we, uh, our presence in this country is conditional on us fitting in. And so to fit in, they sacrificed on those values. I don't know, I'm probably sounding like I'm going around in circles here, but I just feel like a lot of the rhetoric that we see today is actually very much connected to how we initially responded to the war on terror. I think that we need to discuss how the securitization of Islam, making Islam a security issue through all of this discourse, has had very long-lasting effects in terms of how we as Muslims and how the younger generation today are receiving Islam and understand Islam. I think one thing to point out, and this is probably more prevalent for like our parents' generation, who um, a lot of them were like first-generation immigrants, right, to the Western world, whichever countries they settled in, um, and they faced a lot of racism based on the colour of their skin, etc. And you get what we call now coconuts, who are brown on the outside, but feel like, you know, their children become coconuts where they're brown on the outside, um, feel like they're white or identify as the, you know, native, whatever they are on the inside, and they don't identify with their cultural heritage anymore, right? Um, because there was so much racism, etc., that was levelled against their parents, they now try to distance themselves from that. For us as Muslims, I think, especially post 9-11, and as I as we've been discussing throughout this, probably before that even, um, but probably in a stronger way post nine eleven, um, that attack has been on our Islam, right? Your you know George Bush in his speech, he actually says, you know, when he goes on and on about terrorists and things like that, and I'll paraphrase it a little bit because I know we were all laughing about it in the beginning, but it's just. It just, you know, it, it really sends chills down my spine just li- like reading everything that he said because it's it's almost like foreshadowing for everything that was going to come. Um, but he says things like, "The Americans are asking, why do they hate us? They hate what they hate what they see right here in this chamber, a democratically elected government. Their leaders are self-appointed. They hate our freedoms, our freedom of religion, speech, freedom to vote and assemble and disagree with each other. They want to overthrow existing governments in many Muslim countries, such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. They want to drive Israel out of the Middle East. They want to drive Christians and Jews out of the vast regions of Asia and Africa. These terrorists kill." Not merely to end lies, but to disrupt and end a way of life with every atrocity. They hope that America grows fearful, retreating from the world and forsaking our friends. They stand against us because we stand in their way. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you're with the terrorists, right? So The last line. That like, one. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists, right? So I guess either... I don't exist. <laughs> So you either, and because they made Islam synonymous with terrorism, you identify with Islam, you are now a terrorist. So you, you know, the the choice that a lot of our gen had to make growing up in schools was to try distance themselves as far away from what we're calling, you know, that extremist Islam that they labelled it, or to any semblance of like orthodox Islam or like Islam as the Prophet would have recognised it. Otherwise, you'd be labelled as a national threat basically, right? And so you see nowadays with, you know, what we call like the reform agenda or how Islam is being forced to mould itself and mutate into all these very acceptable PC liberal loving ways is kids who are being moderate in ways like that, you know, like Aisha Hage was saying, does it mean that we don't pray, you know, 23 hours out of 24, but means 
we're okay with eating McDonald's, for example. <laughs> Americans. I want to add to this that this has impacted, like, in really sinister ways, the very fabric of our societies, right? The surveillance state especially has completely changed our relationship with the mosque, just our general mosque culture. And, you know, it's supposed to be a, like a place of refuge, but it's often, especially in the US, a place where you could be under, like, a real threat. And just generally how we interact with other Muslims and, you know, it's kind of created a us and them within our own communities. And, you know, this mm. very, like, this very lovely concept of trustworthiness and reliability that, you know, within the Muslim Ummah is very much under attack because of these, um, because of this surveillance and the very real um, repercussions. And in the UK with prevent and everything, there's, you know, our Imam will not say, mention certain things in his sermons. You know, situations in Syria and Palestine are always brushed over in like a very fluffy language. And, you know, like my local mosque, SubhanAllah, was recruiting for the British army um, recently. And I was like, SubhanAllah, this is going to look like opposite. Recently? Oh that's not a mosque. Oh my. That's a McDonald's. <laughs> Damn it. I even kept that one hidden. But SubhanAllah, like, they were really preying on like young guys saying, we're going to offer you all this training and, you know, gym membership and things like that. Um, you know, just like the complete opposite of, okay, I get the threat of, you know, recruiting in ISIS was happening like a few months, maybe a long time ago, but this is completely other opposite. And it's and like a very robustization of like very key concepts in our faith, like, you know, like jihad and martyrdom. And, you know, like when I say it contributes to like a reform of Islam, it's like our understanding of these concepts are now within the framework of war and terror, right? We're not going to learn this in the very like noble and brave ways like that, you know, the Prophet and the, the, the Sahabi took part in. It's very much in the context of, you know, come on, jihad, the first thing shouldn't be Osama bin Laden, but that's exactly how it's going to go forth. And our next generations are very much learning Islam in this context, which is very worrying for us as Muslims and the communities as a whole. Yeah, it's one thing to like look at how in the in just like Masajid and local communities, Muslims have become like a lot more like they start tiptoeing a lot more about like how they talk about Islam and everything. But even on an academic, like scholarly level, when we talk about something like like the conversation that we're having now or conversations we've had in the past mm. about like political reform, like what does, you know, like Sharia based governance look like a lot of it, it's like a very like dominant trend. I hope I can say that and like you know not not be exaggerating but i do think it's a big trend now to like p- to paint this these conversations and these attitudes as like materialist marxist islamist obsessed yeah. with, obsessed with the dunya like you know missing yes. the point yes. reactionary islam rather than us just like trying to you know like look at our situation find solutions to it that are based in islam not to say that like you know we're like always doing that perfectly but like even approaching the conversation is seen as like you know, on an academic level, on a scholarly level, is painted as extreme. And another thing I'll mention is that, like, I think a lot of Muslims, like, diaspora Muslims, think that they have, um, like, they've successfully, like, beat that, like, assimilationist tendency. And they're like, no, actually, we don't feel like coconuts. Like, we're, you know, we're super comfortable in our identities. Like, look at me wearing my traditional clothes with jeans or wearing my, you know, whatever, like, is my cafe and my dupatta like to school look at but it's always that like the them trying to like prove how they fought assimilation is always through culture not islam and yes. not to like i'm sure there are plenty of examples of people doing it with their islam but i feel like the dominant trend of people being like look i'm not being assimilationist i haven't fallen victim to that tendency is to like present their culture as a thing that like you know represents them as like a or validates them or whatever it's they they see and that's the thing is like even that like this whole 
celebrating ourselves and like fighting the assimilation tendency and like fighting Islamophobia by presenting our true selves, the way we do that has been constructed and very strategically shaped by the same entity entities and by the same people who created that, you know, that tendency in the first place, who created those pressures in the first place, which is like, okay, Absolutely. first we're gonna like uh, invalidate like your Islam, your identities, whatever. Okay, now we'll let you do it, but in this very specific way, which is like do all your cute cultural stuff, but like keep the Islam out of it. I think it's very much also that they see what is socially acceptable now, you know, the liberal left culture that's out there. And then they almost slot or cherry pick whatever bits of Islam or Hadith or Ayat that like fit comfortably within that narrative, right? Of being super inclusive and accepting and like, and they will only highlight and showcase, you know, those Ayahs or Hadith that talk about loving, you know, each other, loving for your brother, what you love for yourself or like, you know, like really, really, really selective um, like almost fitting Islam into that and be like, look, we're we're okay. Like you know, look, Islam came before you guys, and we've got these lovely, you know, warm and fuzzy things as well. Versus, I don't know. It's just like you know, they're trying to blur the lines between and make it. I know, I know what you're saying, sorry about them saying that they're fighting the assimilation, but I I don't buy it. If you know what I mean, like it just feels like they're finding, like they've made their own jigsaw piece, and it looks very similar to the rest of the puzzle, and they're just trying to trying to fit it in without really showcasing Islam as it is, in its full glory and unapologetically as. Listen, we have a completely different worldview. Our purpose in in life is to you know be pleasing to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and to abide by His Sharia, but and that you know to come out with that in a really boldly, unashamed way is not what we're doing not what we're seeing not where what a lot of people feel like we're allowed to do because all of that looking over your shoulder with preventing everything on the horizon still happens a lot yeah it's definitely not like i don't buy it either because that thing is like it's a it's a nice Mm -hmm. example of like fighting assimilation as long as you don't like overstep certain boundaries but if i come out and i'm like i think this whole political system is a sham Mm -hmm. and like if you say that and it's like yeah i'm not going to assimilate to like the dominant like cultural political i don't believe in democracy (laughs) yeah no that's like a failure you know that's not it's not even a failure to assimilate it's like oh my god can you like act yeah like even muslims won't accept that i mean some Mm. won't at least i mean i think that uh, this is the thing i get what both of you what you're saying i mean you guys are saying the same point but what you were saying, Sarah, about how people think that they kind of got over the need to assimilate now. I feel like that was very much characteristic of the of, of the post-war on terror. After 9-11, that was it, right? It was like, hug me, I'm a Muslim, you know, we're not going to, like, kill you in the streets of London or New York with no evident weapons. Come and hug me. And it's like, you know, <laughs> an amazing thing that people actually wanted to do that, even though it's kind of pretty obvious. But anyway, it was that kind of performative activism that was all the rage, you know, to show people that we don't mean any harm. You know, even I remember when I was at university, people were giving out flowers to just show that, you know, we're so nice, we'll just give you roses on the street, you know. Um, But, you know, obviously that was as well the huge justification for Muslim women above all else as the most visibly, you know, part of the Muslim ummah to go out there and get on the hijab campaigns and get on all of the ads and the fashion and you know, once we're in there, people will realise that hijabis are not monsters, that we have hair, that we don't sleep with it on, that we don't wear it in the shower, and then they'll just treat us like normal human beings. And that has been shown to be a huge failure, honestly. Like, 20 years on, I think that everybody realises now, a lot of people realise, that that kind of tokenist representation is useless. But if I'm honest, I feel a little bit kind of 
uh, frustrated in that calling out that representation now as tokenism, like the damage has been done. The damage was not all Muslims going into that industry and, you know, like, look, we didn't get people accepting Muslim women. The damage was that by seeking that representation and by being encouraged from all different you know, levels of our community to seek that, what we were actually being told we need to seek is acceptance and validation from society. And that acceptance and validation was conditional, whether people realized it or not. It was conditional on you showing that your hijab is, you know, fitting in with the with the color schemes or with the fashion campaign of that particular shop. It was conditional with showing that as Muslims, we're only about peace and love, just like Christians who say, you know, similar things. Islam is just a religion like them. That's all very, very conditional. And going into those spaces, then that's forced Muslims to ally with those kinds of groups that will give them that acceptance. And very often, those groups hold concepts that are very alien to Islam, whether that's about things to do with social norms or gender or, you know, sexuality or those kinds of stuff, whether those are concepts to do with politics and, you know, political formations and, 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 and states and things like that, whether those concepts are to do with the role of religion in our life and, you know, is, is religion actually necessary in, in 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 this day and age can't we just be spiritual can't we just be good people can't we just be ethical being in those spaces has given way to all of those ideas which are becoming very normalized which many muslims of the younger generation are struggling with and this is all like in my mind as result of the war on terror yes but how we responded to that by responding as very desperate people who wanted to show a certain image we have unfortunately, yeah, we've shown that image and now we're battling with that image. How do we actually show that, yeah, well, we're different. We have some boundaries. Now those are the questions we're asking. How do we show that, okay, we agree on these issues of, you know, obviously treating all human beings well, regardless of, you know, who who, who they claim to be or, 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 or what gender they ascribe to, claim to ascribe to. But this is not something that I believe is permissible. How do we negotiate that? And perhaps if we'd set our boundaries and set our beliefs more clearly from the beginning we wouldn't be in this situation now i think that's a really important point that you raise aisha h because i mean if you want to look at examples of failures of tokenism and this representation of muslim hijab um exhibit a would be the you know pan-european ban on hijabs right for example um it would be you know for example the mayor of london Sadiq khan who's muslim for instance you know i'm not going to judge his Islam by any means, but just having him at the table of a political sphere in, in London doesn't mean that life in London for Muslims got any better or that he was suddenly pushing for Islamic policies or, you know, Sharia or like laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would be like, Mashallah. like, you know, like, like that wasn't what was going to happen because like you said, those spaces are very conditional. Who is going to think that Boris Johnson and the Queen will be like, do you know what, we now have a Muslim at the table, we probably should be like a little bit more tolerant of Islam. That's not going to happen, right? You're sitting in the UK, in London. Like, why would they bend over backwards for you? You were bending over backwards to fit in with them, right? And and what you were saying about how some of what we're facing now is probably as, as, as well, it is as a result of, of how, you know, the Muslim community reacted then, like you were saying, it really highlights the dangers of having knee-jerk reactions and what we think as being the solutions for these things without first referring back to Islam, referring back to Quran and Sunnah from, you know, the life of the Prophet ﷺ who by and large dealt with a lot of the things we're facing with today 
and what the Islamic way of dealing with it is, you know, without just, I don't know, putting our sisters on catwalks and thinking that's going to fix it for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to also mention one point, which is like, like a specific effect that it's had in terms of like communal discourse on like Islamic education itself. And like, I know it's a, some would consider a stretch to call things like halaqas and like khutbas uh, islamic education but this is like the avenues that most muslims just like you know receive like reminders and um you know like some knowledge about like islamic history sirah hadith quran is like through those things like halaqas seminars whatever but like now what we consider at least in my community what is considered a good halaqa is one that like give packages islamic like rulings and points in a way that it's very convenient and easy for you to present to your non-muslim friends like oh that's a good one like i can present this to people in a way that makes sense to them or oh that like that's an example from it from the sila that relates exactly to like you know this situation that i can present to my friends that makes uh, islam seem like this a very very like modern american thing or like who we consider like a cool good scholar is one who dresses very fashionably according to like western fashion standards who speaks in a very like you know charismatic uh like like method of oratory according again because there are different styles and methods of oratory right there isn't just one type of eloquence but the one who speaks in a way that appeals to american audiences the one that we feel comfortable showing to our friends the one that we feel like that we like putting on these like big stages that we like putting on like um news channels and everything those are the good scholars those are the ones who are doing the good work so it has even shaped like the way we just like approach islamic education where it's like the khutbah is no longer good if it just like if it reminds me of my akhirah which is what the prophet sallallahu khutbahs usually did right like they were supposed to they were they, he was reminding the ummah of like what their actual ultimate end was and what they were supposed to be working for now a good khutbah is one that like addresses the like whatever internet issue the muslims have been talking about lately whatever current event has been happening it always it has to be like relevant to me personally as like uh, it's a, it's i do consider it kind of narcissistic like it has to be you know about like what i'm going through it has to validate my struggles oh my god when the sheikh mentions this like very specific thing that i went through finally i feel like i fit in in the community when it should be those kind of like overarching just like important like the foundational principles about like who we are where we are and where we're gonna end up like that should be the essence of those like again they're just reminders right like these halaqas and seminars and everything but even what we consider like decent examples of those is very much shaped by i think um the overarching like assimilationist tendency and just like this hyper consciousness of ourselves as like a um a minority that's always on the defensive if that makes sense and in addition to that tendency to just try to like re- to package Islam in a way that is very palatable to like the broader uh, American public, I think one other trend that I've witnessed in the community, like uh, you know, throughout the whole like post nine eleven era, is kind of the opposite, which is like almost like it has served as like an awakening for people, which is um, you know to say that also that there were people who were already kind of aware of the situation which is like that these governments are a lot more nefarious than you know than they might present themselves to be and they had kind of like a a broader understanding of like you know foreign policy and the like place of the ummah in all of this but for a lot of other people like this was the wake-up call i think where they realized like hold on it's not just like you know 
I can't just be like a happy-go-lucky American Muslim, very comfortable in my American identity, very comfortable with the fact that I pay taxes to this government and also declare my loyalties to the Ummah and not kind of feel ashamed in front of other Muslims being, you know, participating in this government in a sense by being a citizen and so on. So I do think that at least it it did serve as like a beneficial wake-up call for some people just to see like how blatant um, the war on Islam itself is and which has been like obviously long pre-existing but um it became obvious for a lot of people now yeah yeah absolutely i think you know we've spoken a lot about obviously how those how the war on terror has affected us as uh as muslims in the west and obviously because it's a discourse stemming from the west that makes sense you know how that discourse has changed and we've been looking at it before and after the events of 9-11. I think we do also need to remember that the war on terror is something that has become very globalised and it is something that is continuing to have a very strong relevance to other countries in the world. I mean, the some of the big issues that are going on in the Ummah right now, some of the greatest tragedies, very much use terrorism as a justification uh, in a standard that has been set by the war on terror and by the events that followed 9-11. China, for example targeting the Uyghur population in East Turkestan are doing it on the basis of terrorism. The same way that Bashar al-Assad, when he wants to, you know, vilify Syrian revolutionaries and and, and, opposition, and the opposition, he also, again, accuses them of being terrorists. And unfortunately, you have a lot of people as well falling for this rhetoric. So this is the thing, in opposition to the war on terror and in opposition to 9-11, you have, like we were talking about, that woke awareness of American imperialism, but it's actually making people support that same war on terror narrative when it's used by other countries. Um, and that in itself is obviously hugely problematic and, again, doesn't bode well for, for the Muslim ummah when we consider us in totality. Yeah, so essentially the war on terror creates like the perfect scapegoat that God knows for how long will be used to inflict carnage upon Muslims around the world. And it really helped tip the scales in favour of you know, like the power hungry. For example, like the Bosnian genocide took place before 9-11 and before the war on terror. Yeah, the trials and the court hearings are still literally happening right now. And if anyone follows Balkan politics and the you know political discourse, anti-Muslim sentiment is still very much alive there. And this post 9-11, you know, Islamism narrative that is frequently heard in regards to like Afghanistan and Iraq is often found woven into the defense of killing Bosnian Muslims, you know, in mass before 9-11. And if this can be used as a defense for something that happened in the past, we cannot even begin to imagine how it will be weaponized in the future. And I guess this is why there's so much focus on, you know, in the Muslim sphere on defining what exactly terrorism is. And I know sometimes it's it kind of, it's a bit um, cringe when the people are talking about, you know, we are not terrorists, da, 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 da. but, you know, we've seen most recently in regards to like the Israeli brutality in Palestine, that, you know, terrorism is only really um, attributed to Hamas. That's the only official terrorist party there, despite, you know, Israel inflicting like most of the injury. And I guess like another defining um, characteristic of the war on terror, in the UK at least, um, I don't know if you all went through this phase or listened to Loki. <laughs> and you know, this is not um, an endorsement of him at all, because he's a very problematic individual, but he had this um, this track called Terrorist, which essentially claimed that, you know, this label was exclusively attributed to Muslims and, you know, whitewashed Western crimes and um, crimes of white imperialists. But, you know, I remember listening to him like, God damn, like, it's like God, like, this is like groundbreaking stuff. This is like, so, you know, it was such a thing for us to really see that, like, wow, violence is for other people as well, not just Muslims. Um, but, you know, the thing is, terrorism is always um, an attribute on, people always blame it on the weaker party, you know, like, um, 
Yeah, the thing is, like, it's really weird that, you know, analysts and moral philosophers always seem to undermine the violence of, like, stronger parties. Um, in, because it makes it seem like, you know, terrorism is something, like, the first and, you know, the, the first line of defence of, um, of the Muslim of the week. And it's playing into, like, very orientalist tropes anyway. But it's illogical because for the week, all they really have at the end of the day is resorting to violence. That's what they have to do in the end. But for the superpowers, you know, the really big countries, they have been using violence and, you know, routinely um all the time and it's it's you know it's like it's, they do it because they have the capacity the money the manpower to violently and you know just to successfully be capable of inflicting violence and still have stability afterwards and there's this quote um i really forgot who said it but um a violent structure leaves marks not only on the human body but also on the mind and the spirit and you know war and terror isn't just a war in afghanistan that kills people it's created these power-hungry, selfish, like, exploitative people and nations or who realise that they can benefit from the oppression of Muslims and really just, you know, drive the narrative into however they want to do it and also maintain themselves to be the virtuous because now, you know, they are just fighting against these very, you know, barbaric Muslims who are just always violent for some reason. No, no, no one's looking at why they're violent. No one's looking at the underlying thing of what's um, making this happen but because they know they can control the narrative, um, they can literally get away with it. Yeah, that's the thing is, like, even if the, like, term terrorism has a very specific definition, which is non-state violence, the problem is that it has become synonymous with illegitimate violence, and that state-sponsored violence has become synonymous with legitimate violence. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the problem. It's not even, like, having different terms for different things, which, like, fine, like, that might be valid, but it's it's what we justify, what we consider legitimate. And when you have war and terror as the inception, uh, sorry, 9-11 as the inception, it's just that it's almost making state terrorists or state violence look as if it's the resistance because they're resisting against what anyone does after that because we're seen as the act not we as in um, muslims and whole but are seen as the actors and you know the west only reacting to what we are doing um Mm -hmm. that's how they legitimize it basically yeah yeah absolutely i think that all with all of these things in mind then whilst many aspects of what we've been talking about as what we remember of the past 20 years have morphed and transformed into something else th- these aspects are still very much existing in different parts of the world and you know as amina was saying is, is is likely to exist but i think it's good for us to not get too bogged down by the negativity and the kind of somber reflections i think that we've had so far they're, they've got their place, but there's obviously, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's plan is obviously supreme. And the way in which the various trials that we've had as an ummah, how this has tested us, but also strengthened us in many ways, I think that also should be recognized. I think even the fact that we're able to have this discussion today, alhamdulillah, and release it without fear of any significant pushback, inshallah, because hopefully we're not saying anything that controversial now. I think even that is is in itself a sign of progress. And we see many other people in the Muslim community having discussions and challenging some of these things that have been going on for the past two decades. And I think that, mashallah, that shows that there's a lot of room for us as, as, as an ummah to grow and to, inshallah, explore new ways that we can deal with these narratives that have really had a hegemonic control over us for so long. And for us as Muslims in the West to, inshallah, you know, craft our our own identities and to resist against the reform efforts that we see. And to, inshallah, you know, hope for better days in, in, in the Muslim world as well. And, 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 and pray that as tides are changing in some places there, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's, that with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's help, we can see change there too as well.
Yeah, and just like a general reminder that, you know, Allah will never leave the oppressed, whether it's, you know, someone who's been targeted by Islamophobia or, you know, countries who are, you know, um, crippled by war. And he will always humiliate the oppressors. And we've seen those tweets about how, you know, Afghan farmers who can't read and write have, you know, wrecked the American soldiers and made them leave with their guns and their bombs. And, you know, that's only with Allah's mercy. And we should always remember that. And, you know, it's with his mercy that, you know, it's taken 20 years for Afghanistan to now be inshallah without war and this little this slight change in dynamic has been you know the cause it's a lot of effort a lot of work a lot of patience a lot of prayers and inshallah maybe it means a khair for them and you know for the better but inshallah that can be you know inshallah anything can change at any time and you know we can do our best and you know make dua and inshallah build unity and come together inshallah yeah no i do think it's important that like and i know we always try to do this is like we have two hours of like a super heavy topic and at the end we're like all right what do we do now but it is important because like it's not you know we're, we're always we're supposed to be like an action-based action forward ummah like actions are by their intentions which is not to say that like the intention alone is enough but it has to be followed up um with an action inshallah um i i want to i think the first thing i would say is that like i really hope that muslims aren't scared and that we learn to not be scared and to not fall prey to pressures to change our deen to change the way that we talk about our deen to like kind of like tiptoe around things um which is not to say to like not be wise and i i do recognize that certain people are in positions where they can't speak openly about like very legitimate topics in the deen completely recognize that but those of us who are live in like you know very cushiony privileged um safe places and that we do have the privilege to talk about those things we shouldn't be scared and specifically to american muslims to my own community um which i don't like i, I don't like bash on my community because i i dislike it like i i love it as much as i love the you know the broader ummah alhamdulillah but um i think we as american muslims have to like realize our place in this which is to say that we always think of ourselves as victims and we always think of ourselves as victims of the war on terror which is true in a sense that we have been, you know, targeted by like surveillance efforts and whatnot. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to like be real about our participation in it, our complicity in it, and our like just our position as first of all, as, as people who are uniquely placed to speak against it and to like lobby against it, to lobby against these policies to like, even if it's like some minor change, um, like it, with our own politicians to do something about it, but also I do like at least I feel some level of guilt even though I know it's not really something that like I can immediately change but even like again paying taxes to the American government that's not something that we should like sleep at night comfortably knowing that we do I think like legitimizing all the institutions that are directly responsible for destruction in the uh, the Muslim world and directly responsible for reforming and butchering the deen of Islam, we need to be very aware of our position in all of this, our complicity in it, our participation in it sometimes, and like our silence on it, and to stop thinking of ourselves solely as victims, but to recognize that like, you know, we're we're kind of like sitting, we're, we're at the same time we're benefiting from like all of the destruction that the U.S. is causing in the Muslim world, all of the wealth that they're extracting, we're enjoying it, and we're paying tax again we're funding those efforts and then we have the audacity to sit back and complain about like how we've been victimized and all of that so just to like have more you know kind of like awareness about that to recognize our place in it i think that's important and i think one good way to like gain that self-awareness that i have i've personally found beneficial is to listen a lot more 
to Muslims, like, you know, lay people, people in like different professional spheres and Muslim scholars outside of the U.S. And I, I do, if there's a way for you to access things in like non-English sources or translated sources or like subtitled sources, whatever, because like it, it's such, I don't know, it's such, it's so mind boggling, like how much of a bubble this community is and how much our discourse is like very closed off. And like only once you exit it, do you realize like, We've been talking ourselves in circles, not realizing that like the rest of the Ummah is having a whole other conversation, that they've made so much progress. They're like, they, they're, they've broken down and analyzed the issues that we're facing so, um, you know, like so in such a sophisticated manner. And we're still sitting here like talking about representation and like, you know, um, I feel judged by the Muslim community, but I also feel like I don't fit in at school. And like, that's the extent of our rhetoric, like that's the extent of our discourse. So I think like, yeah, as much as we can like kind of diversify our sources um, and gain that sense of self-awareness, I'm obviously talking to myself first and foremost. I think that's a lesson to all of us, to be honest, to just go deeper and start learning and, and, and looking at this issue from, from different perspectives outside of our own. I mean, this is obviously all an issue that we've experienced. We've lived it. It's, it's very personal. But by finding out experiences beyond our just personal ones, that's where I think, inshallah, we can, we can make real growth. Um, and I think one thing as well, that if a criticism, as we've kind of talked about today, but I've seen many others um, also mention it, if we look back on the past 20 years and find that we've been reactionary, in our in our response to to these events or we've rushed into trying to craft the identity that we thought would be working for us at this point we we rushed into that we need to remember then that a believer isn't bitten from the same hole twice and you know one thing i think that inshallah we can do going forward is to be a little bit more critical of of ourselves it's been 20 years and alhamdulillah many of the uh, foremost threats that we were talking about earlier on, as we were saying, have they've transformed into something else or they're less severe as they once were. I think that therefore one of the issues that has come out of this that we need to be very cautious of is how our understanding of Islam has been shaped by these events, how reform efforts have used events since 9-11 and used the war on terror to manifest in a different way and you know like Sarah you know you're saying oh we're talking about representation alhamdulillah you know representation is that issue that like people are being a little bit more critical of now that's great but at the same time if our response again to these issues is to be reactionary then that's that's not good enough if we criticize representation but we don't actually understand islamic values of brotherhood and sisterhood and unity as an ummah that should be replacing our need for validation from external uh, elements in society, then that position isn't grounded in Islam to begin with. These are the kinds of criticisms that we need to be able to make of ourselves and that will, inshallah, enable us to construct a stronger identity that we can hold to in the face of these new challenges. Yeah, I think that's a perfect note to end on. Alhamdulillah, I hope that we were able to I think that this served as like a beneficial reflection session, but also hopefully a source of motivation for people to not just like get bogged down um, by the events that we've not just been witnessing for the past few years, but also the news that we've been seeing for the past few weeks and to like fall into a pit of despair because despair is like the opposite of, um, it's something that a Muslim should never experience because of their knowledge of their very real knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as all powerful over all things as the determiner of all affairs um, so we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to 
guide us towards the truth, um, to protect us from falsehood, to forgive us if we've said anything that is incorrect, um, and to always make us people who are uh, working towards the improvement of the ummah and of the world as a whole and never to be working against it. Jazakumullah khairan for listening. If you have any thoughts, please feel free to share them with us. This is the Qarween podcast, but we also have our website, qarweenproject.co, where we publish articles on various topics. Um, so do we encourage you to go ahead and read those. Let us know your thoughts on them, inshallah. Um, look out for future episodes and please keep us in your du'as. Um, Jazakumullah khairan for listening. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you.